My name is Martin Luther. You may know me as the heretic, the fox, the wild boar in the vineyard, or more politely, the philosopher, the theologian. My wife, Catherine, simply calls me doctor, to which I call her my Katie, my rib, my boss. <laughs> On April 21st, 1521, I found myself as a 37-year-old man standing in front of the most powerful men on the planet. Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor, along with his Spanish guard, cardinals, bishops, princes. And they asked me two questions at that time and asked for a simple yes or no answer. The answer that I would give to that would become known as the Protestant Reformation. But let me back up. I was born in 1483 to Johannes and Margaretha Luder. Good parents. My father was a, uh, in the mining industry. He was an entrepreneur, and he, he was growing his business, and I was the first of his eight children, and I was his hope. And so they, though none of them had been educated, hoped that I would be educated. And so they saw that at an early age, I was uh, uh, capable in school. And so to great cost to my father, he sent me away to school and eventually sent me to the University of Erfurt in Germany, where uh, by the age of 22, I had earned my bachelor and my master's degree. I wanted to please my father. He had sacrificed so much. I was on track to become a, a lawyer and, and give my law skills to my father's business and to help repay all of his sacrifice and hard work. But the year before... There was an accident. My dagger cut my leg and cut the, or aorta, the, the main artery in my right leg, and I was bleeding out, and I thought I would die, and I, in that moment, was terrified of death. Like anyone of that day, I went to Mass almost every day, and I learned that God was a God to be feared. And so when I came that close to death, I was worried about meeting that God. Well, after graduating from the University of Erfurt and traveling one day on July 2nd, 1505, I was caught in the worst thunderstorm I'd seen in my whole life. Lightning was everywhere. I saw it as the wrath of God coming down on me. And so I, I, I cried out as one bolt struck near me and knocked me to the ground. I cried out, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. I kept my promise. Two weeks later, after a farewell party with my friends at the university, I crossed the town in Erfurt. I went to the strictest order, the Augustinian order. I knocked on the doors and I applied to become a novice monk. Now there I learned that the way that you pursue holiness was through much sacrifice. And I also knew in my own heart I had no holiness and so I worked harder than any of the other monks or novices. I, I would beat myself and, and I would go out at night and sleep in the snow and the brothers would find me and, and bring me back in. I would go through long bouts of, of silence. I would, I would struggle. I would get up with the other brothers every morning at 2.30 in the morning to pray for six hours. 
pursued God with all my heart and soul. I would go to confessional for hours at a time each day, irritating my confessors. At one point, I was in the confessional for six hours one day when my mentor and confessor at that time said, stop it, Martin. God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? Come back when you have something to confess, like killing your parents or committing adultery or blasphemy, but none of these little picadillos, he said. But I continued. I was tormented with my unrighteousness, my unholiness before a very holy God. There was a bright spot in that first year as a novice. First year students at the monastery were given one book to read. It was the Bible. Now, that might not shock you, but it should because those were the only people that read the Bible at that time. They were the only people allowed to read the Bible. So whenever I had free time, which was not much, I read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible. But after that first year, they took the Bible away and it was time to study the important stuff, Aristotle, church tradition, and all those things that they did determine. But the Bible had festered in my mind. Well, in 1507, I was ready for my first Mass. I had been ready for my ordination, and my father, who was very angry with me, and I did not tell him that I was going to become a monk. He heard it through the grapevine. He was very angry with me, and apparently he had, at this point, finally forgiven me, so he traveled to Erfurt uh, the many miles, along with many of his relatives and, and uh, other businessmen and elite people of his town. They came to see me give my first Mass. Now, in the Catholic Mass, the, the high point of it is uh, a communion where we take the, the bread and the wine, and I say the Mass, and in that moment, I was told that when I say those words, the, the bread becomes the actual body of Christ and the, the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. I would be holding the eternal one. So when the moment came and I held the bread and the wine, I froze. Who was I? I said, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of an, even an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God, but I could not open my mouth. Well, as they often was the case with someone doing their first mass, there was a more seasoned priest behind me, and he came and nudged me on, go on, Martin, you can do it, Martin, you can do it. I couldn't do it. Much to, again, the embarrassment of my father and my family, I let them down again. Oh, I eventually mumbled the words and, and went through the motions, but that struck me that day, that me could hold God? How is that possible? Well, Eventually, probably to get me out of the monastery, they were tired of my antics. At one point, uh, someone said, saw my life and said, Martin, you must really love God. And I thought, love God? Sometimes I hate him. I only see Christ as a judge coming to, with a sword to strike me down. 
Well, I got invited to go to Wittenberg and to study theology there, and, and they saw that I was a sharp student, so I, I took that on, and I headed to Wittenberg, and I, I, I entered the monastery at Wittenberg and continued to study theology, continue, again, not studying the Bible, but studying the, Aristotle, mostly, who I hate, uh, and uh, studying the church traditions and the, the edicts and the papal bulls, and I, I learned them well, but I was not satisfied with them, and my heart was still struggling, wrestling. Well, in 1510, I got the opportunity of a lifetime. I was to represent the Augustinian order of Germany and go down to Rome 800 miles away. And so me and another monk named Nathan walked 800 miles to go to Rome. I walked through Germany, across Switzerland, into Italy. I went to Florence and saw the newly carved Michelangelo, I was not impressed, continued to go down. He was naked. I was not impressed. <laughs> continued to go down. When I came to the holy city, I fell to my knees and I said, Oh, great God, and oh, what a holy city. Indeed, you are holy because of the blood of the holy martyrs. Oh, I looked forward to that. But not only that, because you need to understand something about Roman theology. You need to understand purgatory, the treasury of merits, relics, and indulgences. Purgatory. See, only the saints, only the best of, uh, of humanity gets to go directly to heaven after they die in Roman theology. And then, uh, uh, of course, Jesus did, but everyone else has, has sins that are staining them, that they've got to uh, purge themselves. That's the word purgatory comes from. And so uh, you might have 10,000 years or 100,000 years or 2 million years to, to serve time suffering in purgatory. And so you try to do good works and try to earn some time off. But uh, then there's this thing called the treasury of merit. The Catholic Church believes that uh, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, and, and part of those keys included this grand coffer of the treasury of merit. All of the overflow of the righteousness of Jesus and the saints go in there, and it's, it's like a bank where the church in Rome gets to decide how they pay it out. And so you could do certain things to earn what are called indulgences. You could pay money to the church and, and, and get an indulgence and get time off of, of purgatory, or you could do certain good works. Uh, a few hundred years before me, you could earn uh, thousands of years off your purgatory if you joined in the Crusades. But one of those ways to get an indulgence is to go to Rome and to view the relics. To go to Rome was to take thousands and thousands of years off of your time in purgatory. So I was naturally ex excited as I had felt the weight and the sin and the shame on my shoulders for many years now. And so as I went into the city, I expected to see this holy city full of holy people, but I did not. I saw priests carousing with prostitutes, public urination, drunkenness. There was no reverence for God. There was a rushing through the Mass as, as the pilgrims would come and, and, and they would pay each priest to do the Mass and so they would hurry through the words so that the words were unintelligible. It made no sense to me. Oh, I wanted to preach at St. John of the Lateran Church because if I was to preach the Mass there, I would earn my own mother's salvation. 
but it was too busy and too crowded the day I was there. So I was disheartened by that. Finally, after fasting all day and going to the seven holy sites in Rome, I came to the Scala Sancta, the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs. Uh, That's part of these relics now. Relics are these holy instruments, you might say, from Jerusalem that, uh, uh, that, that are brought to different churches and different places that, that if you even view or touch the relic, you can get time off of purgatory. Even in my own town of Wittenberg, Prince Frederick the Wise, he had collected relics because people would come and pay to see the relics and they would get, well, Frederick had over 19,000 relics, breast milk from the Virgin Mary, hair from John the Baptist. Uh, uh, splinters from the cross of Christ, and so on. 19,000 in Wittenberg. And you could earn 1.9 million years off of purgatory if you just saw all of Prince Frederick's relics in Wittenberg. So naturally, I was very excited to be in Rome and to go up the Scala Sancta, these stairs that were brought supposedly from the temple in Jerusalem and, and set up where, where Pontius Pilate stood at the top and brought Jesus to the top and, and said, what shall I do with this man? And the crowd yelled, crucify, crucify. And I was told that if I go up on my hands and knees and, and say a Hail Mary and uh, our Father on every one of the 28 steps, oh, then I could earn salvation for uh, some of my dead relatives. I was, the only thing that made me sad was that my parents were still alive because it would do them no good. If there was one way I could pay back my father, it would be this way. But I went anyway because my grandfather had passed. And so for him, I went up the steps one by one, one by one, our father and Hail Mary. And when I got to the top, with the cold marble on my knees, I said out loud to no one in particular, I wonder if any of this works. I was disappointed. I did not get to meet the Pope Leo X. I wanted to meet this most holy of men, although I come to find out that he was the least holy of men. He was of the Medici family of northern Italy. He was a political power player. He was the first Pope that was not even a priest. He thought the The Roman coffers were his own coffers to to do exorbitant parties and and whatnot, and he dwindled the money of the Catholic Church. And I headed back the 800 miles with Nathan back to Wittenberg. Well, when I was back in Wittenberg, my mentor, Staupitz, convinced me one day under a pear tree to study for my doctorate. I resisted because I didn't want to make a name for myself. I didn't want to get my doctorate so young. I knew it would make my fellow students at the University of Erfurt very upset with me for who was this young punk that would go and get his doctorate of theology. But here's the thing that convinced me. He said, Martin, you can forget all your duties as a monk and you can study the Bible. And I was convinced. I wanted to get back in that book that so many years ago that I had been in. He said, you can not only study it, you can teach it. 
And so I began to teach. They let me teach the book of Psalms. And I began to teach the students at the University of Wittenberg Psalms. And then I got to teach the book of Galatians. And then the book of Hebrews. Finally, the book of Romans. And as I studied and poured over it and and banged on the book of Romans saying, what does this mean? How do I find righteousness? For all this time, I was still fasting, still beating myself, still finding any way to purge myself of my sin. I was beating on the text and I came across Paul's letter to Romans and his words in Romans 1.16 where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. (laughs) The Pope sat on a golden throne in Rome, and this woke up to me as I sat on the throne, the other kind of throne. And I thought I was struck by the earthiness of it, that here I am in the outhouse, and I have this awakening to the gospel of grace, that righteousness comes by grace alone, through faith alone. And my life was changed, and the weight of my sin and shame was was relieved, and joy came into my life for the very first time. And I got out of the outhouse a new man. (laughs) And I began to teach this. This was about 1514. I began to teach this and teach this this, this, and and write letters and encourage the saints across Germany uh, uh, about uh, how God is is not a a, a cruel judge in the sky, but a, a gracious Father who has sent His Son in love for us. And I began to teach the gospel more and more to myself. But I didn't know how to get it out there. I was just an unknown, unnamed monk from East Germany. Well... It came about that the Roman church needed some more money to build St. Peter's Basilica. And they needed to raise the money from all the Holy Roman Empire. And to do that, they, they would do their old trick of selling indulgences. And so you could go and pay money, and they would give you a, a very fancy piece of paper that said, uh, you've earned this much time, or you've totally earned your, paid for your salvation. And they sent their best man in Germany, a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel. He he was a masterful orator and a sneaky oil, snake oil salesman. He, 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 of course, we wouldn't let him come into Wittenberg, but he would go to towns as close as 20 miles away. And many of our own people would travel there because, after all, if you could just pay some money and earn and pay for your salvation, and it was too tempting for them. So they'd come back to me and and they'd come to confession and they'd say, Dr. Martin, I've, I've got this paper. I, I don't need to confess anymore. I don't need to do anything. Which I told them, well, if you're trusting in Christ, you're right. You don't need to do anything. But that paper will not help you at all. Well, this dirtbag, this pig, this, this Johann Tetzel, he would go into the town square and he would, he would arrange a giant bonfire uh, as a visual illustration and he would, he would say, this represents the fire of purgatory. This is where you're all going. This is where your loved ones are. And the most insidious thing of it was is now you could not only buy an indulgence for yourself, you could buy an indulgence 
for those that have passed away before you. And so he would say, your, your mother, your father, or your children that have died are, are suffering even now in the, the fire of purgatory. Uh, don't you love them? And then he would lead the crowd into the church, and he would preach a second sermon. And he would say, if you really love your mother, or your father, or your grandfather, or your child who passed, well, you can do something about it right now. After all, didn't your mother and father sacrifice so much to you? Well, you can buy one of our indulgences and they can get out of purgatory today. Don't give them another second in that agony. And so he raised a lot of money. And as the doctor of theology that I was, I decided I needed to confront this issue for the sake of the church. I loved the church. And so I wrote in Latin, 95 theses. And I posted them on the church doors at Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. Now, at the time, all that was was an invitation to an academic debate. That's why I wrote them in Latin and not in German. And I had sent some to uh, some of the other archbishops thinking I would get their support, but I didn't know that that archbishop was actually getting half of all the indulgences raised in his area so he sent my letter down to the Pope in Rome with my theses. My students, they took the, the copy of, uh, that was on the church doors, which was just the bulletin board of the day, and they translated it into German and went to the newly invented printing press and sent it to four different presses and made thousands of copies of these theses. I had no intention of that. I simply wanted to have an academic debate. In fact, when the day of the debate came, I went into the church and I was the only one there. No one came to debate me. So I thought the issue was dead. But a few months later, I found out that the issue was not dead. That people all over Germany and now even into France and England and others had been reading my theses. It was simply to confront this idea that you could somehow pay for or earn your salvation. And it got to the desk of the Pope, and he wrote a letter and said, this drunk monk in Germany, which may be true, but has written these letters. He's just a while, when he sobers up, he'll figure out what's up. Well, these began to catch fire. These, these, this idea began to spread, and, and he issued what was called a papal bull, giving me 100 days to recant or I would be excommunicated. Now, you have to understand, in the medieval time, if you were excommunicated, you were out of society, you were anathema, you were condemned to hell. And so he gave me 100 days. And he had sent this papal bull throughout Germany and, and told all of the people around that they were to burn all of my books and my writings, and, and they began to do that. So when I got the letter, on the hundredth day, I gathered my students in the, the, the village of Wittenberg, and we went out in front of the tree, and I burned his papal bull. Well, that obviously got back to him, and he was not happy about that. So he alerted the newly crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, the 21-year-old from Spain, to do something about this monk who's spreading these heresies. Well, they had their diet of worms, not a diet of worms, that's a different thing, but a diet of worms, a, a parliamentary meeting scheduled in Worms in April of 
15, 21. And he sent me a letter. On command of the Holy Roman Emperor, I command you to stand before me for a trial. I took that to mean I would finally be able to give a defense for my belief. And not one to back down from anything, I would, I would surely go. And so to the, to the chagrin of my friends, I, I headed out to Worms. And the great crowds met me along the way, 300 miles away from Wittenberg, down in western Germany. And on April 20, on April 17th, rather, I, I entered in the room, and I, I saw many people I knew, and I was, I was laughing and joking before I was severely rebuked, because apparently you cannot smile in the presence of the emperor. And so there I stood, this no-name monk from eastern Germany, in the presence of emperor, his guards, princes, archbishops, all the most powerful men assembled. And I noticed on the side of the room a, a table with a stack of pamphlets and books, and I recognized right away that those were my books. And my nemesis then stood up. He said, Martin Luther, I have two questions for you. They just demand a simple yes or no answer. Are those your books? And do you recant of everything in them? Well, I thought I was going to have a debate. And I didn't know what to do. So I said, can I have a day to think about it? And they granted it to me, so I went back to my room. Many visitors came in. It was really my jail cell at that point. And I prayed through the night, Lord Jesus, give me strength. I'm willing to die in the fire of a heretic but I want to honor you. So the next day I went when it was time to go and their other meetings had gone on long so it was late in the evening. They finally brought me in and again before everybody, Johann Eck, my nemesis stood up and said, Martin Luther, are those your books? And do you recant everything in them? And I said to the first question, insofar as they have not been tampered with, yes, those are my books. Do you recant so said, well, I'm going to answer in three ways. On the one hand, some of those materials are just for the building up of the Christian, which even the Pope himself has said has been good for the church, and so I cannot recant of those. Secondly, the, I've said some things against uh, the destruction that I see against the gospel and the church that has been led by Rome and the destruction of Germany, and I can't recount of those. And third, I have said some things about people that I haven't been too kind and Christianly about. And insofar as I've done that, I apologize. Johann Eck said this to me. We are not interested in your exposition of the Bible. Every heretic uses the Bible, which tells you something. I ask you again, and this time answer clearly without double talk and without horns. Do you recant your books and the errors they contain, to which I said this. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Now, 
Charles had promised the whole empire that he would give me safe passage from Wittenberg and to Wittenberg. But everyone doubted I would make it back alive. As they debated over the next couple days, word got to me that Charles was very angry and that he was going to issue an edict that demanded my burning at the stake. But he also promised that I could get back to Wittenberg. So on the day that it was time for me to leave, we left towards Wittenberg on a carriage. And over several days and even a couple weeks to get those 300 miles, one day about halfway there in a dark German forest, we were attacked by a, a, a violent mob of knights that had come and, and, and made me run alongside their horses for two miles until we were in a completely secluded area, at which point they said they were my friends. They put me on their horse, took me to the castle in Wartburg, Germany. For the next 11 months, I would take on the pseudonym of Junker George, Knight George. I grew out my beard, I drank beer, and ate German schnitzel. I clamored for news about the Reformation. Was it spreading? And, and it was spreading, but not in the way that I had hoped. Some things were moving far faster than I had hoped, and some heretics were, were even infiltrating even the church in Wittenberg, and I was very anxious about this. And so I prayed and prayed and waited and waited in seclusion in a little tiny room with a desk, a bed, and a giant whalebone vertebrae given to me by the prince. I don't know why. (laughs) They say it has magical powers. Nonetheless, as I waited and wrote to my friends in Wittenberg and continued to correspond, the prince Frederick, my prince who had set up the heist to protect me, urged me not to come back. It was not safe. Everyone in the Holy Roman Empire was commanded that if they found me, to arrest me and to burn me at the stake. So it wasn't safe. So I did the only thing I could do. I did the thing that no one else had ever done before. I had a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and I translated it in 11 weeks into the common language of the people, the German language. When it was complete, I couldn't hold myself back anymore. And I said, I'm going to Wittenberg, much to the dismay of Prince Frederick, because I knew it was politically unsound for him, for me to be there. But I went, and I went to Wittenberg. And we published the New Testament and the Old Testament in the German language so that the, the, the barnyard boy would have more knowledge of the things of God than the Pope who sits on the throne. And I saw it become a reality. I fixed some of the heresy that was going on, and I uh, introduced some new things into the church. I introduced communion being both bread and wine for the people. Before, it was only bread for the people and bread and wine for the priests. I introduced something that maybe you've experienced, congregational singing. See, before, it was only the choirs that would come up, and the people would stand there and watch them sing. But I said, no, God's people should all sing the praises of God. 
I introduced what's called the priesthood of all believers. I said, if our righteousness comes from God alone, then all of us uh, find a level ground at the foot of the cross that, that everyone is a priest unto God and that the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker is as holy as the priest and the monks. I introduced German into the worship service. Before, it was only in Latin and the people didn't understand and I brought the sermon as the central point, the Word of God for the people of God. Those were some of the things, but not only that, I, I continued to fight against uh, the Pope and continued to fight against those that were on his side. I continued to write many books and pamphlets. I preached 7,000 sermons, 2,500 of which were preserved. And I continued to strive. We found out that there were some nuns in a, loca, in, a, in a village about 20 miles away that had heard of the Reformation, and they wanted to break their vows. And, and in that region, it was uh, some of the other German princes made it illegal for anyone to leave the monastery or the convent. But, but I felt burdened for these nuns, and how could we get them out? And so we came up with a plan to bust them out of the convent, and we brought 22 of them out, not against their will. They wanted to come out, uh, but 22 of them out, and we quickly married off the bulk of them to other priests that had come out of the priesthood, and now they were married. And some people asked me, Martin Luther, don't you want to get married? And I did not. I did not because I knew that at any moment the Roman soul, the Roman empire's soldiers could come into Wittenberg and burn me at the stake, and I didn't want my wife and kids to experience that. But there was one, Catherine von Bora, who had refused to marry any of the other priests and said, I will get married. It's not that I don't want to get married, but I will only marry Martin Luther, the doctor. <laughs> I put her aside for many years because I, I couldn't do that because, again, at any moment I, I faced death for my heresy. But eventually I gave in. And when I was 42, I married Catherine. We had great marriage. She was every bit my equal intellectually. She could spar with me. She was good with money and I was not. And so she managed the household. She helped think through my sermons and helped me write my pamphlets. She was a beautiful woman. She was so bright, and, and we had these children. Um, we had our first daughter. But my life was also not free from pain in those days. I suffered severe depression, attacks from what I believed was, was, was devils themselves in my life against the work of promoting the gospel. I had severe physical ailments, I almost died a couple times. Plague had struck throughout the medieval ages, and it even came to Wittenberg. We sent all the students away to other towns and villages and many of the other people. But many of our own people got sick, and me and my family took care of them in the black cloister where we lived and watched them die. One in particular, a mother who had given birth through much pain and agony to a stillborn child and she herself would die from the plague a few days later. And then my 11-month-old daughter died in my arms. We had another daughter who I affectionately called Lynchin. Lynchin was my sweetheart. I had some sons as well, but Lynchin was my dear. 
when she was 13, she died in my arms as well. It was out of this pain, the plague, and the death of my daughters that I wrote, A Mighty Fortress is my God, is our God. So there's my story. You ask me, what is my hope for 500 years from now? Well, my hope is that Jesus would come back tomorrow, but if he should tarry for 500 years, what would be my hope? My hope is that the people of God, that they would love and defend the gospel against all who would seek to distort it and its message both inside and outside the church. My hope is that they would be constantly reforming and coming back to what is known as the five solas that sprung out of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. That the Bible alone is the authority for life and, and faith. That it isn't church tradition or creeds or councils, but this would be our guide and our authority. That every person would have it in their own language and be able to read it for themselves and hear the very words of God. Sola fide. That discovery I made in the book of Romans, that, that salvation is by faith alone, that we are justified before God. His righteousness is credited to us, and he takes our unrighteousness, sola fide, sola gratia, that it comes to us by grace alone. Nothing we could do to earn it, nothing in us that is good, but only the goodness of Jesus coming to us as a good gift that we might find relationship with God Solus Christus, that it's all done by, God, by Christ, through Christ alone. No longer do you have to uh, confess to a priest or get a priest to pray for you or pray even to the saints, but you can pray in the power of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, directly to your heavenly Father, Solus Christus, and that everything will be done soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That Monday morning is as holy as Sunday morning. That whatever God calls you to is a holy and good calling. That everything would be done for the glory of God alone. So there's my hope for 500 years from now. Thank you for your time.